please go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're continuing this morning uh, in our series, Kingdom Authority, just considering uh, the authority of Jesus uh, and all that that means for our lives. Matthew chapter 8, and we find ourselves this morning um, just towards the end of chapter 8, um, starting at verse 28. Uh, Let me just pray for us as we come to God's Word. Father, we pray now that as we come to hear you speak, um, that you would humble our hearts, that your Spirit would illuminate uh, what you would say to us through uh, this Word, so that we would hear, that we would believe, and that we would respond in obedience. Father, give us grace for where we fall short of what you call us to, and give us uh, mercy as we seek to live these things out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Please do keep that open in front of you. Uh, We're going to be working our way through those verses into chapter 9. As we come to these verses this morning, the question maybe is, what do you and I most need to experience as we encounter Jesus this morning? Because we believe that. We believe that as we open up God's Word, that it's a living and active Word, and that God speaks by His Spirit through His Word about His Son. Every time we open Scripture, God speaks by His Spirit through His Word, and He speaks about Jesus. We encounter Jesus through the Spirit working through the Word. And what exactly is it that we most need this morning Or what is it that this passage causes us to encounter about Jesus? Well, as we think about encountering Jesus, we maybe think about experiencing joy or rest or love. Maybe it's peace, hope, help. All of those things are true. But what we're going to encounter specifically this morning about Jesus are two things which are critical if we're going to be a follower of him. One that may surprise you, another which maybe doesn't. The one that doesn't surprise you is that we're going to encounter this morning the forgiveness of Jesus. We're going to encounter the fact that Jesus can forgive us and that we need that forgiveness. The thing that we maybe aren't so, so, that we're more surprised about is that we need to, this morning, encounter fear. We need to encounter the fear of Jesus. In one sense this morning, we should walk away having been terrified by Jesus, by the power that he has and the authority he demonstrates in these verses. And we'll see why we need to experience that in just a moment. So whether you're a Christian or not this morning, these two responses to Jesus are really at the heart of what it means to follow him. The invitation today, either for the first time or for someone who already follows Jesus, is to fearfully trust Jesus and be forgiven by him. That's really the response that this passage calls from us this morning. This is how we should walk away from this passage this morning, fearfully trusting Jesus and being forgiven by him. The first thing we're going to see this morning then is that Jesus has authority over Satan. I should fear and trust him. Jesus has authority over Satan and his demons. I should fear and trust him. If you look down at verses 28 to 34, let's just read those verses together. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, 
coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So Jesus has crossed uh, over uh, to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, to the Gadarenes. He's now entered Gentile territory, which reminds us that though his ministry primarily focused on the Jews, on his own people, it wasn't exclusively Jews. He was seeking to reach Gentiles, to reach the nations. And he encounters in verse 28 there two demon-possessed men who were living in tombs. The word demon in verse 28 there immediately causes us to pause and to to remember and to realize, just as we've seen already in chapter 4 and in chapter 8, that this world is not just flesh, blood, and material things. It's a spiritual world. Evil exists both within the human heart, yes, but also in the form of Satan and his demons who are actively at work to blind, tempt, tempt, deceive, and harm. They are actively at work to stop the spread of the gospel, the building of the church, and to stunt your spiritual growth. That's a reality in our world, some, one that we can often underplay or not realize. The reason that the the Satan and demons are so prominent, if you've spent time in the Gospels, you'll have realized that they come up a lot, that they come up a lot, especially in the Gospels with Jesus and even into the book of Acts. They're they're prominent in the life and ministry of Jesus, and we'll come across them multiple times again in chapters 8 and 9. And the reason for that is because in Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived. The king has arrived. And now there's this major clash going on between the the demons and Satan who exert significant authority and power in this present age. 2 Corinthians 4 describes Satan as the small g God of this world. And Jesus has now come and there's this huge kingdom clash going on between the powers that exist, Satan and demons, and of course the Son of God. 1 John 3, 8 tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why this clash is going on. That's why these things are in the Gospels. But what we see, though, is not just in Matthew 8, but in the rest of Scripture, that Satan and his demons are no match for the authority of Jesus. Verse 28, do you see how the the demon-possessed men are described? They are so fierce that no one could pass that way. These men strike fear into the locals. No one dares go near them. Don't know whether there is a place or a person that's kind of struck that fear into you uh, in the past. 
As I was thinking about a place that you wouldn't want to walk by, as when we grew up at my Nana's house, there was a back alley along the houses in her street, and there was this huge dog that used to reside in one of her neighbor's houses, and we were always scared to go down the back alley because if we did, as soon as we came there, the dog would go mental and would bark at us. This is kind of like that. These men were so fierce that no one wanted to walk past the tomb. No one dared go across the face of the tomb for fear of being coming into contact with these men. Mark 5, which is uh, another account of this, describes how the men couldn't be subdued. People tried to chain them up and to shackle them, but they, they broke those chains. These men were totally out of control. Yeah, look at how these two men respond to Jesus. Verse 29, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to, tor to torment us before the time? The men that everyone feared, themselves fear Jesus. The men that everyone feared stand and shudder before the Son of God. They recognize him as the Son of God, and they also know by what they say that their time is short. They recognize that Jesus will one day judge them and sentence them to eternal torment in hell. Verse 31, you see there, the demons begged him, begged him, didn't just ask permission, didn't just say, hey, Jesus, we recognize you're more powerful than us. Please be nice and send us to this hierarchy. They begged him because they recognized who he was. They begged him to be cast into a herd of pigs. And with one word, Jesus cast them out. The supposed God, small g God of this world, the, the supposed rulers and authorities who exerted authority in our world, one word and Jesus sends them out. Go. They go into the herd of pigs. The pigs then rush down a steep bank into the sea and drown. They're destroyed. It's a strange picture in many ways, isn't it? Maybe perhaps to some of us it's comical, maybe a bit disturbing to others. Maybe you have some questions about all of that. The main point here, though, is to show us that the real person to fear here is not the demon-possessed man. It's Jesus. That's who we're to fear here. In some ways, we're to take their cue. Jesus is the one to be feared here. The demons begged him, and in one word, he cast them out, and we watch a whole herd of pigs. Mark 5 tells us 2,000 we watch them fall to their death. It's also a picture of what will eventually happen to Satan and his demons at the final judgment. It's a forewarning to them. Verses 33 to 34, though, are important in thinking about how we might respond to this. The herdsmen who were looking after the pigs, uh, they see what happens. You can imagine that they're like, this is mental, this is crazy. They run back into the city. They tell everyone what's happened. The whole city then comes out. And you'd expect them in one sense to be grateful. These two demon-possessed men who they were all crippled by fear of are, are now normal again. They're now restored to their former selves. You, you'd expect them to be in awe of Jesus and be like, who is this? We, we must follow him. You'd expect them to want to, to glorify him and, and then go and tell other people about this person, this son of God. But instead, they beg him to leave. Go. Get away from us. 
likely because they were more concerned about the fact that they'd just lost their herd of pigs than that the Son of God was standing right in front of them. Is that how we are to respond? What are we to make of this encounter? How does all of these things apply to us? Well, firstly, let's just go back to restate that Satan and his demons are a present reality in our world. They are active and aggressive. We must not underplay their existence. They blind, they deceive, they tempt, and they cause hardship. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But we must be sober and watchful, but we must not become fearful. I had a conversation recently with someone in the local area who had someone they knew starting to dabble in demonic occult type practices, and they were rightly concerned. But the tone of the conversation veered much more into fear than it did into watchfulness. We are to be watchful and sober-minded, but we mustn't be fearful. In Matthew 8, we've seen Jesus' authority over illness. We've seen his authority over nature. And now in this encounter, he powerfully demonstrates his control and his authority over the spiritual realm, even the evil spiritual realm. In his life, Jesus shows us that Satan is not sovereign. And in his death, Colossians 2 tells us that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has disarmed Satan and his demons. They're still like a dog on a leash that can bark and growl and prowl around. But we have nothing to fear. Matthew 12, as we'll see in a number of weeks, Jesus has bound Satan. The gospel can go forth. The church will be built. And we know that in Revelation 20, that Satan and his demons will one day finally and fully be destroyed. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So as believers, we are to be sober-minded. We're to be watchful. We're not to underplay these things, but we are united to Christ. We have Christ's Spirit in us, and he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That is Satan and his demons. The Christian cannot be possessed by Satan or his demons, nor can Satan snatch the believer out of God's hand. In Ephesians 6, we see how we are to battle Satan and his devices. We've been given everything we need to stand firm in the faith until Jesus returns. It is these truths it is Jesus' authority that should make us fearful. The way to avoid fear in the Bible isn't simply to say to yourself, don't be afraid. It's to fearfully behold the one who makes those promises. As these verses call us to do multiple times, it's to behold the one behind those promises, behind those commands not to fear. It's to fear God himself. It's to fear the one who can do that, who can cast out demons with one word. We're to allow the fear of God, the fear of Jesus, to outweigh any fear we might have of anything else in this world. Perhaps one of the reasons we fear so much in this life is because we, have a, we, we believe in a small Jesus. The Jesus of Matthew 8 and of Scripture is no small Jesus. 
He is to be feared. The antidote to all of our fears and anxieties is filling our hearts with awe as we behold Jesus' authority in these verses. The way, the best way I would have overcome my fear of going down my Nana's back alley and going past that dog was not to go along thinking, don't be afraid, don't be a dog. It would have been to get a bigger dog, right? It would have been to get a dog that if that dog had managed to jump over the gate would have had, had a field day. That's what we're to do here. We're to, we have a bigger dog. We have someone to fear, someone who is bigger and more powerful and has to be feared more than anyone else in this world. And he's on our side. We have nothing to fear. We can trust him. We have the authoritative son of, son of God. And in these verses, really, he's terrifying. The demons testify to that. And it's the fact that he's terrifying that makes him so trustworthy. Think about it. Why would we put our trust in someone less powerful than us or equally powerful than us? We need someone who is more powerful, who is completely other, who is way above us. We need someone who is to be feared. That's the kind of person that I want to put my trust in. That's the kind of person we are invited to put our trust in. Jesus invites us to put our faith in him, to trust him. And when we do that, the one whom we are to fear becomes the one who is for us. That's not how they responded in verse 34, was it? They responded with fear, yes, but with unbelief. See, we are to respond with fear, but also trust. A reverent fear, an awe-filled fear that also trusts, recognizing that when we do that, Jesus becomes for us. They feared, but they didn't trust. We are to respond with fear and belief. Initially, that means repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection and for eternal life. On an ongoing basis, it means beholding the authority of King Jesus and choosing to fearfully trust him. And here's the thing. If we truly fear him, and trust him, we will follow him. We would have asked him to stay. We would have said to him, can I follow you? We'll see that more next week as Jesus calls Matthew. We'll see the right response of following Jesus. So we're to fear Jesus. We're to trust him. And we're to follow him. If you say you believe in God this morning or you consider yourself a God-fearing person, but you don't actively follow him, you don't submit your life to him, you don't bear the fruit of repentance, you're not actively belonging or part of a local church, then the Bible says you likely believe in a different God. We are to fear Jesus, we are to trust in him, and that will lead to following him. If it doesn't lead to following him, if it doesn't lead to saying, Jesus, stay with us, Jesus, how can we follow you? Then perhaps you're not following or believing in the real God. James 2.19 warns us starkly that you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We see that in James, that 
in the context of saying that faith must be accompanied by works, faith must be accompanied by following. Even the demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. It's not enough to just say, I believe in God or I'm a God-fearing person. If you don't actually follow, if you don't actually bear the fruit of repentance, if you don't actively belong to a local church and live your faith out, then all you've done is the same as them. There's also a stark warning in here for all of us. The fate of the herd of pigs doesn't just foreshadow what will happen to Satan and his demons. It foreshadows what will happen to all who reject Jesus. Matthew 25, 41 tells us that. In the passage about judgment, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, that is those who have not believed in Jesus, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You'll go to the same place as them. Here then is the urgent warning in verse 38. Don't send Jesus away. Don't close Jesus out of your life. Don't ask him not to bother you. In sending Jesus away, the people in verse 38 were essentially saying, we preferred things before you arrived. We preferred things the way they were before you came here. We preferred things just the way they were Really? With demons hanging about? With evil? With two absolute nut jobs threatening you anytime you walk past the tombs? Really? You, 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 cho- you choose a herd of pigs? You'd rather have kept your pigs than have me and follow me? Yes, Jesus will disrupt and change your life if you choose to follow him, but it will be for the better, eternally so. There's a warning here too with the fact that it's likely the reason they wanted him to leave was because of the fact that he killed their their possessions. Don't allow possessions to keep you from Jesus. Don't allow that comfort, that allure. Don't allow your love for your former sinful life to keep you from Jesus. Accept him now. Follow him now. Don't send him away. It's a sad reality that just like the crowd in these verses... It's possible to see Jesus do incredible things, divine things, and yet still reject him. That's a reminder for us as a church that the mission we are giving ourselves to, the message we proclaim, will be rejected. Even though the Lord might do amazing things amongst us, transform our lives, have multiple living testimonies and witnesses to what God can do, yet many will see that and hear that and still say, leave me alone. Jesus has authority over Satan, so we should fear and trust him. The second thing we see in these verses then is that Jesus has authority over sin. I can be forgiven through faith in him. If you look down at chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, let me read those as well. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So Jesus has um, healed essentially these two demon-possessed men. He gets back in his boat. He crosses back over the Sea of Galilee and comes to his own city, which is Capernaum. And there he encounters this paralytic man who's been brought by some of his friends. They've likely heard that Jesus is healing miraculously, and rightly so. They desire for their friend, and the paralytic man desires for himself to be healed. Jesus calls their desire, their recognition that he can do that, faith. He he acknowledges their faith in verse 2, and then he turns to the paralytic in verse 2 and says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, doesn't he? No. That's not the first thing he says. That's what we'd expect him to say. That's what his friends would have expected him to say. That's what he probably expected Jesus to say to him. But instead, the first thing that he says to him in verse 2, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Hold up, Jesus. Can you not see I'm lying on a stretcher here? I can't walk. You've been healing all these people. Like, Could we maybe address that first and then we'll get to the sin bit? No. (coughs) Why does Jesus tackle sins first? Well, I think firstly to highlight that the paralytic's greatest problem, our greatest problem, is not physical but spiritual. Our greatest need is not physical healing, which is temporary, but spiritual healing, which is eternal. It also reminds us that the root cause of all sickness and suffering in this world is sin. Sin which entered into the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve. And when they sinned against God, death, decay, and disease entered the world. Jesus came to deal with the root problem and to rectify that through the cross. In this encounter, Jesus highlights for us the primary purpose for which he came, the main reason we need to encounter him, forgiveness of sin. We see that later on in Matthew's gospel as he institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1 tells us he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Over and over and over again, we see in the Bible, the main priority is the forgiveness of sins. What is sin? Sin is at heart saying no to God. It's choosing to reject his rule and rob him of the worship and obedience that he is due. Is transgressing his law. Sin is therefore an offense first and foremost against God. The Bible teaches us that only God therefore can forgive sin. That's why the scribe says that he's blaspheming in verse 3. The scribe knows this. He knows his Bible. He knows that only God can forgive sin. So he hears Jesus say this and he goes, hold up. You're not God. You're blaspheming. He doesn't realize that Jesus is God. Jesus perceives his heart, their hearts. They don't believe he's the son of God. They don't believe he has authority to forgive sin. Verse 4, if you look down, says that Jesus, knowing 
their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts, and he perceives their thoughts as evil and proceeding from the heart. Here we see a few things. First of all, God knows the thoughts of our heart. God knows the thoughts of your heart. As you sit here right now, he knows every thought of your heart, good and bad. He will hold us to account for what goes on in our hearts. That should strike fear in us. For those who are Christians, we know we are forgiven in Christ, yes, but we will still be held to account for what we desire and do. We also see that it's easy to appear religious. Consider who it is that challenges Jesus, a scribe, someone considered well-versed in, in scriptures. It's easy to appear religious, but not be saved. This man doesn't recognize him as the Son of God. He teaches us that without true faith in Jesus, without recognizing Jesus and following him, it's all a front. You can know the scriptures inside out. But unless there is faith in Jesus as the Son of God, it's all a front. It also reminds us that unbelief in Jesus is a heart issue. And it's not a morally neutral choice. Soberly, this verse tells us that unbelief in Jesus is an evil choice. It's choosing to reject our creator and ruler. That's why salvation requires two things. It demands repentance because our thoughts are evil towards God and our fellow man by nature. And salvation also requires a new heart. Salvation is not about good people becoming better. It's not about finding yourself. It's not about becoming religious or connecting with God. It's about people who are spiritually dead in their sin and under the wrath of God having open heart surgery and being made alive. That's what salvation's about. If you're not a Christian, this is what you need to happen in your life. If you are a Christian, this has already happened in your life. You've been given a new heart, and it's what we should pray happens to those around us. How is this forgiveness all possible? It's all possible because the curse of sin and wrath of God could only be lifted by someone sinless, Jesus. Jesus came and lived the sinless life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die on the cross. He bears the punishment that was due to us so that we might know forgiveness of sin and eternal life rather than condemnation and hell. That forgiveness can be received through repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Christ. When we do that, our sin is transferred to Jesus and his righteousness, his holiness is transferred to us. He becomes our one defense. He becomes our righteousness as we sang. We can come to Jesus, therefore, confident that he will forgive us. That's what these verses encourage us towards. Because he has authority to forgive sins, because he himself is God, and he offers forgiveness, and he bought forgiveness with his own blood, we can confidently come to him for the forgiveness of our sins. He has authority to do it. He's not someone just selling forgiveness of sin out the back of his car boot with no authority. He is the Son of God. What He offers, He gives. What He provides, He follows through on. 
we see his authority in verses 5 to 6. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. He responds to the scribe. Well, in one sense, it's actually harder to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because if only God can forgive sins, then that's only God can do that. So how, how can anyone do that? But in order to show the scribe that he is the son of God, he does the second. Jesus proves his authority and his divinity by saying to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Verse 7 tells us, and he rose and went home. Jesus undeniably confirms his divinity by doing what no one else could. He shows himself to be no mere man, but to be God. Therefore, he has authority to forgive sins. Verse 7, the paralytic man walks home. It's kind of a nice picture, isn't it? He, he gets up and he goes home. He walks home healed physically, but not just physically. More importantly, this man walks home forgiven. He walks home with eternal life. He walks home with the promise of a future resurrected body in a renewed world. That can be true of us today. We can walk home today like this man with our sins forgiven, with the promise of a resurrected body and the hope of an eternal future. Verse 8, how does the crowd respond? They were afraid. There's lots of fear in these verses, right? They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Positively, they, they respond in fearful worship. They, they glorify God. But again, there's an important ingredient missing. They don't immediately follow. Most commentaries notice this. It's kind of a half-baked response. They, they are afraid of him. They recognize his authority. They give glory to God, but they essentially stay seated. They don't do what we'll see next week in Matthew 9 when Matthew's called. Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. It's an encouragement to you and me to not give a half-hearted response to Jesus. Don't glorify him and then not follow him. Don't turn up here on a Sunday and then go the rest of your week as if Jesus doesn't exist. Be forgiven, glorify God, and follow So, for you and me, these verses remind us that Jesus forgives first and heals second. That highlights to us that it's of first importance that we are forgiven of our sin. Are you this morning sitting here as a person who is forgiven? As a person who has gone to God and asked for forgiveness of your sin, turn from it and put your faith in Jesus. If not, you need to do that today. We want to help you do that. He is ready and willing and waiting for people to come to him and to ask for forgiveness. No matter your past, no matter your present sin, 
he will forgive it. And that invitation comes with authority. It comes with the authority of the Son of God. If we come to him, he will forgive totally and fully. And we're not just to come to him once, but as Christians, we're to come to him daily. We're to come daily and confess our sins, and he who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness will do that. And we will hear him say to us, definitively in Jesus, and every day when we come to him in confession and repentance, we'll hear him say what he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Don't you need to hear that every day? You can hear that permanently and continually in Jesus. Take heart. No matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, either past or present, if you come to me in forgiveness, I will forgive you and I will say to you, take heart. You don't need to fear. You don't need to doubt. Take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. It's a reminder too for us as a church that we must prioritize the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. We must prioritize the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, at the end of Luke's gospel, in Jesus' encounter on the road to Emmaus, he says, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What is it that we are proclaiming? What is to be the defining heartbeat of what we proclaim? It is to be Jesus, the good news of the gospel, which is what? It's repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We lose that, we cease to be a church. We lose that, we cease to be of any eternal benefit to our friends, to our neighbors, and to this town. We are to prioritize the proclamation of forgiveness of sins, and we can do that, we can offer that forgiveness with the authority and the confidence of Jesus himself. We're not hitting, it's not a, a, a hope and hit kind of thing. It's not a shot in the dark. We proclaim the forgiveness of sins based on the authority of the Son of God. We have confidence and assurance then, not just in the offer of forgiveness, but also in the face of opposition, as we were reminded about at the end of chapter 8. Satan and his demons will seek to stop the spread of the gospel and stunt your spiritual growth, but they cannot. They cannot ultimately prevail. We have confidence and assurance in the offer of the gospel. We also have confidence and assurance in opposition to the gospel. Jesus's authority assures us that the mission will be accomplished. So, the call for you and I this morning is to fearfully trust Jesus and be forgiven by him. He is the terrifyingly authoritative son of God who purchased forgiveness through, the life, through his own life and death. Behold him. Behold him. Behold his authority. Fill your heart with awe and fear of him so that nothing in the world, not even Satan and his demons, can make you afraid. And come to him confidently for forgiveness today. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you once again for showing our often weak, doubtful, fearful hearts of the 
incredible authority of Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would humble us before him, that you would cause us to fear him, and that you would cause us to trust him. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus, though we are to fear him, we are considered sons and daughters of yours, that we can have, that we do have the pronouncement of take heart, my son, my daughter, upon us. <coughs> Father, help us to come to you for forgiveness. Help us to recognize the urgency of that, but also to recognize the confidence that we can have in that call. Father, please change us. Please help us to be people who live in light of your authority without fear and with assurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.